Well, good morning. Good to be with those of you here and those at home. Uh, Dad messed up this morning and forgot to give a hug and a kiss to my daughter on the way out the door, so I think, hi, Olivia. I'm sorry. I love you. She was very sad. She FaceTimed me before I got here, so uh, Dad messed up there. My bad. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about a topic that I'm sure we're all already experts on, probably don't need too much teaching, and that, that would be humility, right? We all got that down. We can all say to ourselves, no one's more humble than me, right? Something you all think. Yeah, I, I see it in your eyes. Uh, humility is a, a funny thing. On, on the one hand, it's a desirable trait. Most of us as Christians would say that we want to be humble, right? I guess it'd be weird if you said, nah, I don't really care about that whole humility thing. If, if we don't want to be humble, we at least want to be thought of as humble might be a better way to put it. At the same time, few of us have thought about what being humble actually means. Even fewer have considered what it takes to grow in humility. In in the place of of true humility, we might use words or phrases that make us sound more humble, like, ah, really, it was nothing, or, yeah, anyone anyone could have done it. We we cast our eyes down and, and shrug our shoulders, maybe kick the dirt a little bit, blush a little bit, and uh, we, we're trying to put on that, that face of humility, but we, we don't always really mean it. Inside, we're, we're congratulating ourselves for how humble we look and we feel. We, we want the reputation, but we don't know how to get to the reality of humility. Uh, speaking of Olivia, my, my daughter Olivia in the past week or so has decided that she wants to wear mom's t-shirts around the house and to sleep in at night. Uh, she looks adorable when she has them on. They, like, go down to her ankles, just a simple size, small t-shirt, but they don't fit right. It's not, not something that actually she should be wearing. Well, that's, I think that's what we do with humility sometimes. We put it on, and we act like we're humble, but none of it really fits us. Uh, pastor and author John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. We know the saying, uh, pride comes before a fall. We, we probably use it jokingly with each other if, if someone's acting confident or, or cocky or something like that. Having too much pride or confidence will normally cause one to make mistakes that, that lead to a setback or a failure. And the phrase, pride comes before a fall, it actually comes from a proverb, Proverbs sixteen eighteen, which says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And in contrast to pride, though, we have what true humility is. It'll show us in our best light. It will make us a blessing to others. The word humility literally means uh, a low estimate of self. Now, it doesn't mean that we're we're self-deprecating. Sometimes people, when they they think of humility, they think of like they almost need to put themselves down. Uh, There are those who think like, man, I, I can't do anything that's not, that's not humility. That's, that's low esteem or a, a general feeling of, of like a lack of significance or importance. And then there's the other extreme of people who have counterfeit humility that in the hope of, of maybe getting a compliment or a praise. Like, could be a, a really good musician who's like, ah, I, I can't really play. I'm not that good. Or a singer of like, nah, you don't really want to hear me sing. Or maybe a gifted preacher who says like, ah, I don't know. Like, I, I just do it because I'm asked to. It reminds me of a story of a preacher who was waiting by the back door after service was over, and a lady came up to him and, and said, Pastor, that was, that was a lovely talk. And he replied with false humility, ah, it wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit. And she said back, it wasn't that lovely of a talk. I mean, that's, that's something we can do. Of we, we're trying to, to build ourselves up with that humility. 
So humility is not low esteem. Humility is not false self-criticism and putting yourself down. True humility is recognizing God has gifted you in some way, but not boasting or being proud about that gifting. Rather, use it to, to bless, bless others and glorify God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his, I think, his greatest writing, Mere Christianity, he says, true humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I love that. True humility isn't thinking of yourself less, it's, or thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So in Luke 9, where we're going to be today, Luke 9, 37 through 50, it seems as if everything has finally come together for Jesus' disciples to realize exactly who he is and what he asks of them. Uh, chapter 9 starts with this great high. Jesus uh, gives authority and power to the disciples to go out and do amazing miracles just like he does, but then they fail in the feeding of the 5,000. He asked Jesus asked them to feed the 5,000. They can't do it. Jesus is the one who has to step in. After this amazing moment, Peter recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Followed by this, though, is this hard teaching of you got to take up your cross daily, deny yourself. After this is the mountaintop experience that Josh talked about last week, where they see Jesus for who he really is on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples seem like they get it, like they've, they've been through the schooling that they need to work alongside Jesus and, and hearing the voice of the Father in the crowd last week saying, listen to him. They're ready to go out and change the world now. Well, how often do we think that we get it? It's all clicking. Our relationship with Jesus is as good as it's going to be. We're doing great, and then some failure pops up and brings us low once again. Well, in Luke 9, 37 through 50, the disciples of Jesus learned a lesson on humility. They, they thought they could do anything at this point, and they're riding high after identifying Jesus for who he is and then the Mount of Transfiguration. But they end up humbled. That expression we mentioned earlier, Psalm 16, 18, pride comes before a fall. Having too much pride or confidence will cause one to make mistakes. An example of that is in these verses ahead of us. We see the disciples fail in a number of ways. We're going to talk about humility. We're going to talk about failure today, too. Always a topic that you're, like, ready to hear in a sermon. So let's, let's talk about, there's four different failures we see from the disciples. The first one is that they're unable to cast out a demon. So this is Luke 9, 37 through the, the first part of verse 43. It says, on the next day, this is after the Mount of Transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, that is Jesus, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So Jesus may be gone at the top of the mountain uh, during the transfiguration with his, his inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John, but the other nine disciples, they're down the mountain, and they're likely available and confident in their ability to help a concerned father cast a demon from his son. The demon here is causing uh, epileptic-like symptoms, uh, among others. The, the boy would scream, he goes into convulsions, he foams at the mouth. Uh, in Matthew's account of the story, it says that 
the demon would attempt to destroy the boy by throwing him into fire or water. Mark's gospel says not only that, but Jesus calls the spirit a spirit who is deaf and mute. So this poor boy's life was in constant danger. His life is really one of torture at this point, not to mention the agony that his parents are going through as well. So the father is desperate, but the disciples are defeated in their attempt to cast out the demon. Well, a large crowd gathers around the nine. They see their failure, and then the crowd is delighted when they see Jesus come down the mountain. They rush to him. The father begs Jesus to rid the child of this demonic oppressor. He was quick to point out that that he begged the disciples to do it, but they weren't able to, so please, Jesus, can you do it? And then Jesus' response in in verse 41, for me, it really catches me off guard. Maybe it does for you too. It says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? So who is Jesus talking about when he says this? Is he speaking of the Father lacking faith, the crowds, the disciples? My understanding based off of commentaries I read this week and, and looking at the word that Jesus used here of generation is he's referring to all of them. He's referring to the Father, the disciples. Mark's gospel tells us there's teachers of the law here as well, uh, along with the crowd that's watching. This is very similar to language that we see in in Deuteronomy 32.5, where the Israelites are called a crooked and twisted generation for rejecting God. Jesus is getting that same idea across to those he's talking to. The the Father was unbelieving. We see that in in Mark's account, Mark 9.22 through 24, Uh, The father says, and has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's like, if you could do something, he's like, if I can, I'm Jesus. Of course I can do something here. Thankfully, the father turns around in, in belief, but he starts in a place of, I don't even know if Jesus can handle this one, if his disciples can't handle it. That's not all. In, in Matthew's account, we see the disciples are also unbelieving. They, they give us a, a, some other details. Uh, Matthew 17, 19 through 20 says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, not very big, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to here, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. If our Lord's words of frustration reveal anything to us, I think it shows us how much our unbelief grieves him. His words uh, further reveal the suffering which his incarnation has, has caused him. It would have been so much easier if Jesus had just stayed in heaven than to come down to earth to dwell among sinful, unbelieving people. I mean, think, think about it for a moment. God did not have to come down to dwell among men as Christ did in the incarnation. God did not have to come to save men, which was the purpose of the incarnation to accomplish, nor did God have to use men in reaching others with the good news. Perhaps we can better understand Jesus' frustration with with mankind, including, maybe most especially, at this point, the disciples, by considering the way in which God often chose to get things done. If you look in the Bible, God often employs angels to accomplish his purpose. Can you ever think of an instance in the Bible in which an angel, an angel argued with God about what he was doing or how he was doing it? I, I can't think of any. I mean, you could say Lucifer before everything happens, but that, that's a little bit different. 
Think about the disciples. They often disputed with Jesus. Peter tried to set Jesus straight on, on a number of things, including just 10 days ago, Peter calls Jesus the Christ, and then right after that tells Jesus, you're not allowed to die. What? Why, why would he not listen to Jesus in that circumstance? Can you ever think of a time with an, when an angel failed at a task? But here, as elsewhere, the disciples failed. I mean, no wonder Jesus viewed his days with men really in terms of suffering. God suffers from hardness of heart, from our unbelief. It causes grief to him, and yet he bears that burden for our benefit. He endures our sin in order to save us and even to use us in the achievement of his purposes on the earth. This is one of the great wonders of all time, that God puts up with us, that he puts up with you, that he puts up with me. How patient and loving and gracious and forgiving must Jesus be that not only does he live with the people who don't get it, that lack the faith in him to do his good works, but that he, he dies for them. Actually, put it differently, that he willingly gives himself up to be killed by them in order to save them and then empower them to tell everybody else so that we're sitting in this gym and on live streams at homes talking about the insane love of Christ today. Don't take for granted the love that Jesus has for us to not only save us, not only provide a way to be made right with God, even, even though we're full of sin, but, but that we are plan A and that there is no plan B to make sure everyone in the world hears the same life-changing message that we have. I, I think that's amazing. And speaking of amazing going on here, what, what the disciples cannot do, Jesus does again, we've seen this over the last several chapters, by just speaking a word. The demon in the boy gives one last attempt to stay inside, throws the boy down one last time, and then comes out of him. And all are amazed at the power of God manifested through Jesus. The disciples at this point are bewildered. They don't understand how they could deliver people from demonic control in the past, but not now. And this story makes sense in light of what happened at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. Josh preached on this a couple weeks ago. There, Jesus specifically gave the 12 disciples power and authority. They were sent out into the villages to cast out demons and to heal diseases. It's actually more than that. He sends them out not to cast out demons and diseases, but all demons and heal all diseases. Now something has happened. They've lost that power. They can't do it. And I think Jesus in his comment, I think he's frustrated by this. And so he heals the boy and restores the family himself because his disciples can't do it. The focus in this passage of how we're looking at it is on the disciples and on their failure to do what Jesus gave them the power and authority to do. They're like a, a car running out of gas on the freeway, or uh, a shopper running out of money when they get to the checkout stand, or, I kid you not, this happened to me one time, McDonald's running out of french fries during the lunchtime rush. I went to McDonald's one time, and they're like, uh, we're all out of fries. I'm like, what? We, like, I, it, it did not process in my head of how could you run out of something so important. So too, these disciples ran out of dependence on Jesus when they needed him most. I think one of my biggest dangers that I fall into as a Christian, and maybe you, you fall in this category as well, is self-sufficiency. That is that we start off trusting in Christ and leaning on him, but slowly there's a subtle change over time. And instead of reliance, 
it turns into self-control, our own control. The disciples had been given the power and authority to cast out all demons in Luke 9.1, but this time they forgot where that power came from and relied on themselves. That's what led to their failure. Let us not become a people who forget the power of the Lord working through us and that that would be our dependence every day. So that first failure is they couldn't cast out the demon. The second one, looking at uh, Luke 9, second part of 43 to 45, they're, they're afraid to ask. They fail to ask. So picking up midway through 43. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Luke says, while everyone else is amazed and marveling at the external miracles, who wouldn't be? I think everyone here would love to see a miracle like this. Jesus repeats his message to his disciples about his suffering and death. He's mentioned this before in the same chapter, back in verses 21 and 22, and he mentions it again in these verses, and they still don't get it. And that's their failure here in not getting it. They don't ask Jesus what he means by saying these things because they did not seek to understand what Jesus was saying because it did not fit their understanding of who the Messiah and what the kingdom of God really was. The fact that they fear asking shows that that they don't understand his words. What they do not understand is how can betrayal happen to a figure whom they've just confirmed as the Messiah? How can such a, a popular person chosen by God suffer? Does this mean that, like, can God's works be rejected if Jesus can be rejected? What Jesus describes is a picture of weakness, not power, in saying that he's going to be delivered. They wanted a Messiah who would overcome their enemies, set up an earthly kingdom right here, right now. So it's no wonder the disciples are slow in their understanding. This description of the Messiah given by Jesus doesn't fit into their preconceived notions of who the Messiah should be. So this is where Jesus is again showing the disciple the importance of humility through his coming actions. Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is God, who is to be worshipped above all else, and the disciples are, are starting to realize this, has just announced for the second time in two weeks that the people he is here to save are going to end up killing him. But Jesus, in his, in his humility, is allowing himself to be delivered to them. He's willing to suffer so that we may prosper. He's willing to be weak so that we may have power. He's willing to face our judgment so that we can experience freedom and salvation. As Jesus says here in this, let this sink into your ears. I love how he says that. He's like, please don't miss this, and they miss it on that side of the cross. True humility comes in putting the needs of others above oneself. True greatness comes from serving the least of these. Another failure the disciples encounter looking at Luke 9, 46 through 48. Luke writes, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who was least among you all is the one who is great." The disciples may have feared asking Jesus about his death. What does he mean by that, of being given up to man? But they're not hesitant or ashamed to talk about who has the best standing in the kingdom. 
Luke tells us the disciples argued amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, I guess maybe this is happening outside of Jesus' earshot, he raises the issue with them. Now, as, as you read these verses coming directly after a prediction of Jesus' death, you might be like me and wonder, what in the world is going on that this is the exact next thing that they discuss? Like, this, this like boggles my mind. But the disciples' debate about their own grace, greatness is most likely related to the disaster that the nine experienced with the demonized boy. Uh, when the twelve are all together, think of how easy it would have been for the three that went up onto the mountain with Jesus and, and witnessed the transfiguration, experiences his glory, hears the voice of the Father, sees that Moses and Elijah are not the ones we listen to, it's Jesus we listen to. They come down and see the nine fail to cast out a demon. I can uh, easily imagine how the argument might have gone. Man, you guys weren't even able to cast a demon out of a boy? When John and I are around, those demons go running for the hills. You guys just need an expert to help you with doing this exercising demon stuff. How easy for the three to look down their spiritual noses at the nine and for a disagreement to, to come up among them. The lesson which Jesus taught his disciples is really an interesting one. He takes a child and said that anyone who ministered that child in his name was actually ministering to him and to the Father who sent him. Now understand that in Jesus' day, children were viewed as an annoyance and something to not waste time on. Now for you kids in service or listening at home, maybe just shot up at being called annoying, hear me clearly. While people around Jesus saw kids as an annoyance, Jesus didn't see them that way. He felt the opposite. And so in response to this argument and jostling for position and power, Jesus once again undoes like the whole system of power. Verse 46, where they start arguing, should really shock us. In all we know and have seen about Jesus coming for sinners and welcoming the poor and embracing the sick, upending all social boundaries, saying, lose your life and you will find it, here we find the disciples in the exact opposite direction, wondering who, who's the greatest right here. It's like that they've decided that Jesus' radical reversal of, of, of social hierarchy means that those who are lowest, which they're viewing themselves as the lowest, they're just blue-collar fishermen, they're, they're being rejected as some of Jesus' followers, now all of a sudden they should have all the power instead of Jesus' real radical reversal, which says that this whole idea of having power and control is ridiculous, ungodly, and absolutely the wrong thing to be striving for. They're thinking that, they're thinking as if Jesus came so that those who had been trampled on and abused could now be promoted to power so that they could trample on and abuse those in power that have done that to them. No, not at all. And the disciples think if anyone has the right to do it, it's us first because we're the guys that Jesus chose. Jesus came to say that the whole system is broken and misses the point. Power and control are temporary illusions that keep people from, from being free and forgiven children of God who recognize that God is the only one that truly has power. He's the only one that has authority in this universe. He gives us freedom to choose, and he wants us to choose to obey him so that we can be free and stop the ridiculous and destructive pattern of trying to control everything. Jesus' kingdom ethics are a total reversal from our worlds. For the one who is least among you is the one who is great. So humility, 
not strength and talent, confidence and charisma, pride and power. Humility is the chief virtue of the kingdom of God. Well, going into this final failure here of being cliquish and exclusive, it, it, it lines up with what's happening here in talking about the greatest. Let's look at the last verses here, Luke 9, 49 through 50. John answered, so in response to Jesus telling him, you're not great, the least of you is, is who's going to be great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So the final failure is along the same lines as the previous one and displays the disciples' continuing inability to give up that that special status that they think they have as followers of Jesus. This comes to light when, when John reveals that they discovered someone who, ironically, is having success casting out demons, the, the very thing that they weren't able to do at the start of today's passage. The disciples take action and tell him to stop because he isn't in our group. Uh, this, uh, to me, this is like really dark stuff. Good things are happening in the name of Jesus. Demons are being cast out. But the disciples want to put a stop to it because he, he isn't in He's an outsider. He's not one of the gang. We don't know him. He's not one of us. So the work of God gets shut down by them. Jesus, who, who again, has been breaking boundaries all over the place. If we start in Luke 7 and work our way through, we just see boundary after boundary being shattered. Josh has been preaching on that. So that people could be free, he now confronts his closest disciples who are, instead of following Jesus' examples and breaking down boundaries, they're actually putting up new boundaries, finding new ways to keep people out and restrict the kingdom of God. Unlike the Marines, which I respect, but if you know the slogan of the Marines, the few, the proud, the Marines, right? They want the elite of the elite for good reason, for the missions they do. Well, Jesus wants all of his followers to use their gifts in his service. Ministry should be collaborative, not, not competitive. It should not be limited to one group, one church, one denomination, one, one theological tradition. We all have something to contribute to the ministry of God's kingdom, and, and we should not be jealous of what others have or, or what they do. All who serve faithfully deserve our support. It's unfortunate that, that we live in a time and a culture where so many churches and ministries compete against each other, whether they say it outright or just are feeling it on the inside. Many of them have an outlook that we can do ministry better than they can, and they refuse to work together. That attitude grieves Jesus' heart. There's, there's no monopoly on ministry. We're all just part of God's kingdom. Now, this, this passage is, is hard on the disciples. There's no getting around it. They, these guys fail, and we're going to take a break before we get back to Luke 9, but man, the next passage to close out Luke 9 is worse than what we just saw right here. They fail repeatedly. But let's be honest with each other. If you look at me, and I look at you, and we look at the universal church, I mean, I see these same failures in me and in the church today. First, we've been given power and authority. Uh, we've been given power and authority to set people free, and either we don't care or we feel like we can't. There's no greater message than the gospel. No other message liberates like the gospel. Yet often people are slow or find ourselves too embarrassed to share it. 
the number one reason why people don't share their faith is fear, right? Some of us have experienced that. I have experienced that. We think we don't know what to say. Well, that's coming from a place of self-sufficiency, which was the same issue the disciples had, of thinking we're the ones who have to do the saving on our own. Remember, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He reminds us of what we've been taught, and more importantly, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that leads people to repentance and faith, not, not our own power. Second, when we don't understand things, we should ask for clarity. Uh, so many disruptions happen in church life over misunderstandings of not just talking things out. Uh, it's said that Phineas T. Barnum, P.T. Barnum, the famed circus creator, he hung a large sign over one of the exits of his museum, he had museums too, which said, this way to the egress. Okay, many people in the crowd, crowd eager to see what's an egress, uh, they pass through the door and then they find themselves back on the street outside the museum and have to turn back around, pay again to come inside. Because if you don't know, egress means exit. But they didn't ask for clarity. Instead of asking for clarity, they're like, oh, egress, that's got to be some mythological creature that P.T. Barnum has found. Uh, when you don't understand, ask for clarity. When you're not sure what God is calling you to, ask him, be honest with him, but be willing to go on that journey with him and be okay with not having all the answers up front of what you're being called to. I think often we stop ourselves from joining in Jesus in ministry because we want to know everything we're getting into before we do it. The disciples didn't know. They should have asked. Thankfully, they come alongside later. Third, we need to resist the urge to operate out of a who's the greatest mindset. We do this when, when we compare ourselves to other believers. We end up judging the spirituality of others. Ah, at least I'm doing better than that guy. Well, our example to judge ourselves against is the example of Jesus Christ, who, being far above you and I, an example we're not going to reach, no matter how, how hard you try, he lowers himself to become a servant and a sacrifice for all. That, that's what makes him the greatest. He, he views all of us as worth serving and loving. Who do we need to look at with that same point of view? And then fourth, don't create boundaries, rejecting people who exist outside of our group. Don't put God in a box. Instead, try celebrating what God is doing. We're so quick to, to classify people based on the church they go to, if they serve in the same type of ministry as ours. Maybe we value certain ministries as more important than others. Uh, if they look like us, dress like us, talk like us, vote like us, that we create obstacles for what we think unity in the church should actually look like. We're far from perfect, but we all love the Lord. And there are many others who are far from perfect, but they love the same Lord. Let that be enough, because it's enough to bring us together in this world. I think we often look at the disciples as almost superheroes of the Bible. We, we can kind of do this with any character in the Bible. It, it's easy to want to. These were 12 guys handpicked by Jesus to live with him for three and a half years to receive special teachings and, and experiences, uh, things that others would have dreamed of, and they were chosen to be the first recipients of the Holy Spirit and the leader of the church in the book of Acts. They wrote the Gospels. They wrote many letters of the New Testament. They saw up close God in human form willingly give himself up as a ransom for our sins and then experience the glorious joy of the resurrection. But as we see from these passages and others, these are just regular guys. 
They're just like you and me. They had moments of, of incredible faithfulness, but they're still in the process of growing and learning to trust in Christ for all things. They failed dramatically in this passage, just, just like you and I do sometimes. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. What really changes them and what really changes us is an encounter with the cross on which our Savior hung. If we want to keep pride out of our lives and instead embrace humility, the first thing we should always be doing is reflect on the wonder of the cross. Remember that you are nothing without Christ's work on the cross, and that will give us a spirit of thankfulness and proper recognition of his authority in our lives. That's what ultimately changed the disciples into us thinking of them as heroes of the faith. John Stott, who I quoted at the beginning, he helps us understand why the cross has this powerful effect. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink down to our true size. That's good stuff, John Stott. One of my all-time favorite hymns is, is When I Survey the Wonderful Cross. The first verse is, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I count as loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. How can anyone be arrogant when they stand before the cross? How can anyone turn to self-sufficiency when confronted with our need for Christ to be on the cross so that we don't have to be the ones enduring the punishment we deserve. The cross puts everything in perspective. The disciples had just been taught this 10 days earlier, Luke 9, 23 and 24. Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save us. Let us become people who deny ourselves, who lose our lives for Jesus, who take up our crosses daily, who humble ourselves to serve and love others, who put off ideas of greatness and instead recognize the one who is truly great, who brings us life and freedom. Let's pray together. Lord, you are great. You are really the only thing that is great uh, in this world, in this universe. I thank you that... Uh, <laughs> despite you being great and above us, that you humbled yourself to come uh, as a servant, to come for the lowly, to come and show that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that we're supposed to view one another as worthy of loving, as worthy of serving, as worthy of, of, of being saved. And God, I pray we would have that perspective on people around us, that you would remove any self-righteousness that might pop up in our hearts, ideas of self-sufficiency, of thinking, I got this, I can do this, and that when we look at you, when we remember the cross, that that would transform us into people who humbly submit to you and depend on you and your power. Lord, this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving, this has been a tough year, and we might say it is hard to be thankful for much right now. God, there's always something to be thankful for, and that's you, and that's your gift. Help us to not forget that we always can have spirits of joy be content with whatever comes our way uh, because of knowing that our sins have been paid for, that sin and death have been defeated, 
and that we can be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, I pray that um, every day you would remind us of the gospel. Every day you would remind us of our need for you. And every day you would give us opportunities to put others above the needs of our own, just like you did for us. I praise things through Jesus' name. Amen.